Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Join us today as we discuss sibling dynamics, building family bonds, and why it's important not to forget to create special moments with your neurotypical children. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we're going to be talking about sibling dynamics. In keeping with the theme of hearth and home. Yes, specifically we're talking about embracing siblings and we mean that in a couple different ways. The first of that is embracing neurotypical siblings. So for example, if you have a autistic child, but you also have a neurotypical child, the relationship that they would have is different than like two neurotypical children. And so sometimes parents have to figure out a way to help them have a bond because it's not always intuitive, especially if your autistic child tends to be like ours and doesn't do great with forming social relationships. Right. I was going to say you might have uh, one child who wants to engage and play and then the other child who is completely content just playing on their own. So those two different play styles don't necessarily intermingle sometimes at all. So you have to try and bridge the gap of how do you navigate the play (laughs) situation a little bit. And it gets kind of tricky sometimes. So we're going to talk about that. And then the other thing that we want to talk about is sometimes what happens, and we noticed this happening a little bit when we initially thought one of our children was neurotypical, is that if you have an autistic child and then you have a neurotypical child, sometimes what ends up happening is that the neurotypical child gets a little bit neglected in the sense that the autistic child, you're so busy bringing them to all their appointments, all their therapies, you're kind of like overwhelmed with being worried about them and caring for them. Them, that sometimes we kind of make the assumption that, oh, the neurotypical child's fine. They can handle it. They, they don't need the extra help. And they end up getting kind of like emotionally neglected in a sense. So that's something that we'll be chatting about today, too. Because for us, we really noticed that because um, our oldest child was having meltdowns and tantrums and such. So, I mean, we were both focused on, okay, let's resolve the tantrum or meltdown. And essentially, our youngest child was very quiet. So we assume that, okay, if we're working with the meltdown and we're both focused on that, then we don't focus as much as like our quiet child who was just kind of watching cartoons essentially at the time. I guess, which one are you interested in tackling first? <laughs> they kind of intermingle in well, a way. Well, I was going to say, our story is kind of, I mean, interesting, at least I mean, from our perspective, because originally we didn't think our youngest was autistic. So we thought that, okay, our oldest is autistic and our youngest is neurotypical. So we had originally started off with, they have different personalities, but I would say that we had kind of started to find ourselves kind of going in the mindset of, even if she wasn't necessarily autistic, we might as well kind of keep some of the common themes as far as like our parenting style, because it would be easy to kind of 
teach them both in a similar manner versus trying to do two separate avenues and then be caught off guard because one might prefer something else versus the other. So for a perfect example, like we have like a schedule, for example, visual schedule on the wall. So we thought that, okay, even if our youngest was not autistic, we would still have a visual schedule for her. So then they would both move over the items of the day. Okay, I've had breakfast. Let me move over the breakfast tab to completed just to keep things kind of uniform so that they grow through their younger years in a very similar way. That's a perfect example of how we tried to mitigate the special attention that we were giving to the oldest child. In order to minimize that, we basically were trying to find out, okay, like what are some things that we're doing with the one that we know is autistic that we might inadvertently make the other one feel left out and is harmless. And so the visual schedule is a perfect example of that. We could easily create a visual schedule and just duplicate it for the other one. If it's things like brushing your teeth, putting away your clothes, things like that. I mean, those are skills you want the other sibling to learn anyway. And we thought, well, she might not have needed the visual schedule, but at least it's not going to harm her, right? So you might as well do something like that, that at the end of the day is meaningful because she feels included now and can be a part of that. And there wasn't anything unique or special about our oldest daughter's schedule versus our youngest. The one item was, I think our oldest daughter was going to her therapies, which we basically classified as like school because it was like a school therapy. So she would have like a little school tab and the youngest would have like going to grandma's house. So I mean, with the exception of like those little items, they basically had like identical schedules as far as their routine through the day. And I just thought, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you and I both have our own schedules or day planners or anything, just trying to keep track of our lives. So we figured, okay, if we start them off young where they can kind of see how their day is progressing and get a sense of routine and kind of an understanding of like, okay, what tasks do we need to accomplish today or what have we done? It was just easy just to kind of keep it a family thing that we all have a schedule. Yeah. And you can always increase the level of difficulty if you have like a neurotypical child. Like if you are breaking something down into micro steps for your autistic child and the neurotypical peer doesn't need that, you can still make a version of that that is closer to their challenge level. So if they are very far apart in age range, then just give that person like more responsibility on that task up to where you feel like you're comfortable that they'd be at. And the other thing that we learned, though, was ironically, it was actually good that we did that because then the youngest one ended up actually having an autism diagnosis. So we had already started down that path and it was just like smooth sailing after that. Do you remember uh, as soon as we got the youngest diagnosed, we were kind of like, oh, okay, like we've, we'll just kind of like continue on this path and then just add in more therapies depending on where she needs them. But basically it was kind of like stay the course. We're already on this path. So I found that once we had the second diagnosis, things didn't really change a whole lot as far as our routine because we were already making accommodations for our oldest child. Therefore, we were also making accommodations for the youngest one, not necessarily with that mindset, but just because it was kind of carrying over, if that makes sense. Yeah, we were inadvertently also making accommodations for her because she needed them and we just didn't know it at the time. Right. So then all we had to do is basically just kind of like flip the switch in our mind instead of like, oh, okay, yeah. It, now we're we'll, doing it we'll intentionally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, before it was kind of accidentally. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it, it actually, I mean, yeah, it worked out, I mean, perfectly well because we had already accommodated for that and the, there was very little change um, overall except setting up new appointments and therapies. For us, the way that we essentially embraced the sibling relationship at first was that we 
encourage the sibling who we thought was neurotypical to engage with her autistic sibling in kind of like day-to-day activities and just like the routine of things. So we involved her in that routine and we made it so that it was more interactive for her as well. Like she was able to participate in these activities. And even if it was things like we were working on fine motor skills or anything like that, usually I'll have like some sort of special like fine motor toy. We had the little hedgehog where you put in the little pegs and stuff. Yes, for the older child, that was therapy. And so at the time, I didn't know that the youngest one also had fine motor delays. But I was like, well, what harm is it in letting you play with that as well? So just doing things together. And our daughters are very close in age. They're about 11 months apart. And it worked out because our oldest had the low muscle tone. So she kind of was struggling anything from walking to climbing to jumping. And the youngest was rather advanced as far as learning how to walk at a much younger age. So she was able to not only keep up with the oldest one, but I mean, almost kind of pass her essentially in kind of, she's very, (laughs) very agile. We call her a little monkey and a little (laughs) koala. She can climb up, I mean, basically up a wall like you wouldn't believe. But it worked out well because we were thinking like, okay, if they are playing together in the playground, they will both kind of be together. So they kind of have that bond naturally if they are able to recognize, oh, I can play with this person and I can engage and kind of go back and forth. I think that was one thing that was helpful. And then she was, I think she was also a bit advanced uh, compared to her sister with kind of the pegs as well. So it was kind of like they had, they could go back and forth and they were at a similar level overall. So it kind of worked out a little bit there where the play wasn't like one was far ahead of the other one. They were kind of in link with each other. Yeah. And not all siblings will have that closeness in age. So we know that that's not necessarily relevant to all relationships out there, but at least you can adjust things so that it's more age appropriate. So for example, if you have a child who's autistic, who's three, and then you have another sibling who's like 12, you can maybe find a thing where the 12 year old is leading the game, setting up the game, they get to create the game or something like that. And then the younger one is the one who is then following through with the game, setting up a scavenger hunt or something like that. Or if the ages are the other way around, you could try it creatively there as well. It's just a matter of trying to make an adjustment so each kid is being challenged at their appropriate level, basically. And I think understanding the role that they play. So essentially, if you have a older neurotypical child that they understand like, oh, okay, I can engage and play with my autistic brother or sister. And these are the types of things that they're interested in. So then they can kind of do a bit of give and take and kind of lead them through that process. So I think also kind of, I think building kind of a relationship of the dynamics of how play actually happens among siblings as well. And one of the key aspects to be able to build these relationships is being able to build that understanding of the autism diagnosis. So being able to tell the sibling who is neurotypical that your brother or sister's autistic, this means that they play differently. It might feel like they don't want to play with you, but it's not necessarily that they don't want to play with you. It's just that they might play differently or they might want to engage in a different way. With our children, one of the struggles that we always had was with the fact that they both have their quote-unquote autistic play that's very different play styles. And because of that, they tend to kind of set each other off. And that kind of goes in line with their sensory inputs as well. Our youngest is much more sensitive to sound, but our oldest is is very loud. She rarely whispers. So when she gets excited, she gets really, really loud, which will kind of trigger the younger one because she is not a fan of loud noise. So 
we have to find some kind of accommodations. But I think essentially focusing kind of on the sensory needs would be important if you are having the conversation with the children that are a little bit older. So you can kind of say like, hey, your younger brother or sister is very sensitive to loud noises or bright lights, just to have that in their mind so they can try and accommodate that so they're not being super loud just to upset the younger one. It's very similar to the advice that we've given about disclosing or not disclosing the autism diagnosis. We've mentioned about how when we take our kids out in public, we rarely, if ever, disclose their autism diagnosis because I often don't find it appropriate or necessary. Instead, we focus on the particular symptom that they're displaying. And that way, I, I find that it's probably more helpful to the person because instead of saying like, oh, I'm sorry, they're autistic, that's not really helpful information to someone who's not familiar with autism. So instead saying like, oh, they struggle with loud noises, it might be easier for them if they're in a quieter environment. So if you use that language that way, not just with peers or strangers, but use it with your children as well, teach the neurotypical child, or if you have an autistic child and another autistic child, honestly, try with them as well, just at their level. Try to teach that you might like loud noises, but they actually like quiet time. So we need to kind of learn to accommodate each other as best as possible. Yeah, I would definitely say gauge the age of the child and then just kind of water down. Saying that their sibling is autistic doesn't help. You just have to get kind of into the nitty gritty of like, okay, these are the characteristics that they are oversensitive or undersensitive in. It puts kind of like a map of various struggles that they have. And then from there, you can kind of work with you like loud noises and they don't. Right. And you can also map out a feelings chart in a way. How you do this depends on the age. But for example, if your child is struggling to get along with your autistic child and your neurotypical child is just like, I don't understand why they act this way. I'm just trying to play with them. It might also be good to give them an outlet for those emotions. So giving them either a journal to be able to do. One of the ones that I really like is called the Big Life Journal. I got those for some people that I know, and they're like these growth mindset journals that you can project down on paper how you're feeling, and they give you prompts to kind of process those feelings. I think those are fantastic for kids and teenagers. So that might be something good to give to a neurotypical sibling who's struggling to cope with the autistic child's behavior. But the other thing that you can do is kind of make sure you're checking in on them and checking in on how they're feeling. If they're able to communicate with you that I get frustrated because we always have to turn down the lights for my sibling and I want the lights on, you know, those types of conversations and see if you can find some sort of resolution where there's some sort of compromise. So like we often think of having these like safe spaces or sensory spaces for our autistic children. But if you have a neurotypical child, it may be that you do the opposite. You could have like a safe space for the neurotypical child too, where they can have the bright lights or they can have whatever they need too. That is a good point because you don't want to build resentment necessarily among kind of siblings. So if you are accommodating only one way, you might damage the relationship between the two siblings because it's kind of a give and take between the two. You know, assuming you have two children, you can have as many as you want. Um, <laughs> but but it would if everything is always Johnny's way or there is no way, then I feel like there's going to be that separation and then it's only going to get worse as time progresses because that child is going to be thinking like, okay, I guess I'm not important because nothing I need is ever met. So I definitely think that, yeah, definitely compromise has to be a priority just to kind of help with building the relationship and how they engage with one another. 
And I would also advise, like, from my own personal experience, because I grew up in a very big family with lots of siblings, and we're all neurodiverse. And because I was one of the older siblings, one of the things that tended to happen is that a lot of responsibility would end up on my shoulders in terms of caring for the younger siblings or things like that. And I feel like that easily can happen in an environment where you have a neurotypical child and an autistic child, where a lot of this pressure is placed on the neurotypical child to behave in kind of like a parental role. And I I just don't feel like that's appropriate. I feel like that's something that personally like damaged me growing up. It was something that was not positive in my life. And although I have gained lots of great leadership skills and everything from it, it just, it's not something that children like going through because you don't get to be a child. You end up being kind of like an adult at a premature age, if that makes sense. Well, it forces you to take on a role that wouldn't otherwise be given to you, essentially. If you are 13, for example, and you are responsible for caring for a a younger sibling, which you might not ordinarily do in any other situation, but you're instructed to or you're told that you need to care for them, it forces you to kind of grow up faster than you ordinarily would. So you might not get to do the fun things that a 13-year-old would do, playing video games or watching movies, hanging out with friends, eating popcorn, all the great things. So it forces you kind of into, yeah, an early adulthood, which kind of it does rob you, I think, a little bit of your childhood. And then I think that might potentially build kind of resentment or at least frustration internally because you feel like you don't necessarily have a say with what you want to do because you're basically forced to be kind of a a miniature adult. (laughs) Exactly. And I will say that that's something to be careful of because sometimes people make the assumption that if somebody doesn't outwardly appear to be struggling with something, that they're fine, they're strong, they can handle whatever. In retrospect, that's often not the case. A lot of times the siblings who burden this just keep things internalized. And that's why I think it's important to check in on the siblings and check in and see how are they doing. It must be difficult for them as well to have to deal with the consequences of being able to see their siblings struggling and not feel like they can do anything about it. Like I'm sure there's siblings who feel helpless to their sibling as well. Like I wish I could make things better for them and I can't, for example. That might be something they're struggling with. Or it could be that they go to school and they get bullied over it. That's the kid who has an autistic sibling. People are ruthless. Children are ruthless. I'm sure that bullying is not past many other peers. As far as a parent, if you aren't able to have the conversation with your child essentially about kind of their feelings, because sometimes kids don't want to necessarily open up to their parents about their true thoughts or feelings. I mean, you mentioned the journal as far as like a place to kind of go and write your thoughts. But we had also pitched the idea, um, actually before we even had kids, kind of the mailbox idea, the idea that our children can basically write us a letter and put it in like a mailbox that's inside and then basically like assign it to us. So if they have a difficult situation that they don't want to confront us face to face, if they're able to put it into a letter, write it to us and put it in a place that we only you and I would see it, then we can read it and basically respond back in a letter and not necessarily like give it to them, but put it in the mailbox as well. So then they can read our thoughts back to them. So it's not like we, if we're not able to have the conversation face to face because of like emotions and not wanting to open up and share, at least we can still get to a a good point or a good place just using letters. The rule of the mailbox is what happens in the mailbox stays in the mailbox. Sounds so so familiar. (laughs) I wonder where that's from. So like basically if you are discussing these hard topics in this letter format, the rule is it's a safe space that's created by the fact that we are not going to talk about it outside of those letters unless you explicitly grant us the permission to do so or it's something that's like life-threatening or something like that. That way it provides a safe space where they feel like they can communicate with these things and not feel like, oh, if I tell you this, then you're just going to nag me about it all 
all the time. So you want to create that like safe environment by giving them a place to do that without feeling like scared of repercussions. Right. And I think uh, if you put in restraints like not having open discussions about it outside of like the, the mailbox system, I think then that can build another layer of trust between you and your kids and basically hopefully get to a better place where maybe in the future they would want to open up in like direct dialogue with us. And who knows, maybe this would be a primer where you could eventually get the siblings writing letters to each other and maybe that would help with their bonding experience depending on the level of autism that your child has. Whether they are able to do that or not, it just depends on the severity of their disability. But you can always find a way. Like there's verbal communication, but there's physical communication. There's there's ways to do it. I always think of like the five love languages. Giving gifts, for example, is a way of communication, things like that. So just get creative. But I think the key to all this is essentially that it's important not to forget that other sibling and it's very easy to do so by accident. So we just wanted to specifically call that out and just ask yourself, have I left out the other siblings? Is there more that I can do to make sure that they feel included? And how are they feeling? Like, am I aware of how they're feeling about this? Have we ever had that conversation? I feel like you can't necessarily embrace autism until you kind of build that family structure where everyone felt that they're heard and have a voice. So I think from there, once you have a strong family dynamic, then you can actually fully embrace autism. And ironically, the advice we're giving here from our experience is basically the same one from the marriage episode where it's like communication. It's kind of key. It's critical to have communication. And again, we're talking about autism here. So it's not always going to be verbal communication, but communication amongst the siblings and then communication between you and that neurotypical child just to make sure that you're checking in and making sure that you are still creating bonding time with that child. Carve out time for them, like take them out on a one-on-one date, take them out to see a movie or go to a game or whatever it is they like to do. Make sure that they are aware that you are still able and willing and wanting to spend one-on-one time with them as well. Yeah, I agree. And if you notice any behavior that's off, I would definitely kind of address that and kind of get to see if you're able to learn what the root cause is, if they felt that they're not being heard or whatever it is, but then you can address it straight on. And disclaimer, of course, we are not therapists or anything like that. So this is all from our personal life experience because we both grew up kind of having this sense because we were neurodiverse individuals growing up. And we had siblings who didn't necessarily get that or were also neurodiverse. So there was like the clash of neurodiversity when you're not the same. (laughs) Of course. But if, yeah, like you said, if you need any further advice, by all means, seek out professional therapists to kind of work with your family. Because, I mean, obviously, this is a podcast where we're just talking about our lives, not necessarily one-on-one, so they would know you a lot better. (laughs) We're just not licensed to do that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But if you take our advice, that's great. Just always run by a professional, please. That's pretty much all we have for today's episode. I hope that you find that helpful. And again, please, please, please just take into consideration the sibling and just don't let them feel left out in, in terms of the family unit and make sure that you're finding a way to create a special bond between both of the siblings. And don't forget to spend some special one-on-one time with that neurotypical child as well because they will start to feel left out. Yep, and we'll catch you next time. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye. To summarize, we talked about how providing your neurotypical child with an outlet to express their emotions, whether through letters, diary, or discussion, is an important part of building strong family bonds, as well as creating a safe space where they can be themselves. We also note how customizing activities to meet both siblings' needs can help create a lasting bond and build memories. 
Lastly, we discussed how creating special one-on-one -on -one moments with your neurotypical children will help them feel included and decrease the likelihood of building resentment. Tune in next time as we chat about expanding your family after an autism diagnosis. We answer questions such as, what are the pros and cons of having additional children? How do I prepare my autistic child for a new sibling? And what are the chances that my future children will also be autistic? This is Embracing Autism.